0: This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by
1: 420-friendly service providers in the Gondrepreneur Business Directory. If you need professional help with your business, from accounting to legal services to consulting, marketing, payment
0: processing, or insurance, visit gondrepreneur.com businesses to find service providers who specialize in helping cannabis entrepreneurs like you. Visit the Gondrepreneur Business Directory today at gondrepreneur.com businesses. Hey there, I'm your host TG Brandfault and thank you for listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of entrepreneurs, activists and industry stakeholders. Today I am joined by a man that does, probably doesn't need my introduction. He is Steve D'Angelo, often called the father of the cannabis industry, he's the chairman emeritus of Harborside Incorporated, a pioneering con- cannabis entrepreneur, activist and author. In addition to Harborside, he co-found several iconic cannabis businesses and organizations, including Steep Hill Laboratory, the first dedicated cannabis lab, the Arcview Group, the first cannabis investment firm, and the National Cannabis Industry Association, the industry's first trade association. Uh, Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the show. Uh, I I can't wait to to get into the uh, weeds, so to speak, with you. We have a lot to talk about. How are you doing this afternoon?
1: I'm doing very well, Tim. Thanks for having me.
0: So you know, as I said, you, you you sort of deserve you deserve more introduction uh, than I could give you, uh, but for those out there who don't know you, uh, give me a little bit of background. How'd you end up in the cannabis space?
1: Well, I was uh, I was a kind of a precocious kid. I, I encountered cannabis for the first time at, at age 13. And uh, had a transformational experience with it, and came out of that experience uh, knowing that uh, uh, cannabis was gonna be a part of my life uh, forever, and uh, also knowing that I wasn't prepared to be a criminal forever. And uh, so, legalizing cannabis was just a basic prerequisite of my, of my personal happiness at first. Uh, as time went on, and I learned more about how and why cannabis had been made illegal and the incredible benefits of the plant. Uh, then I started getting really, really angry and uh, and determined to to make this plant legal.
0: So, and you are one of you know the, again you're often called the the father of the industry uh, and you got your start '90s California. Uh, tell me about those early days, man.
1: Well, the, the I, I got my start way on the East Coast actually um, uh, around the Washington D.C. area, and my earliest days of cannabis activism uh, were putting on the uh, annual Fourth of July smoking in front of the White House. No shit. Uh, and so that, uh, that that lasted for for you know about a good decade. I focused on on doing that work, and then uh, started working on hemp and uh, and hemp tour. Uh, so those years were, were basically just um, you know being a, a an activist and doing what activists do, uh, traveling around the country, talking to people, organizing demonstrations, disseminating information. Um, but over time, I, I developed a, a niche in uh, in socially conscious businesses, right? Uh, cannabis businesses that would allow me to uh, make a living, uh, but also spread my message about cannabis. And the first of those was a, a hemp company called Ecolution um and uh and that uh that company uh basically lasted from uh, 1990 to 2000 uh, when i moved to california
0: so i want to i want to just sort of step back before we get into sort of the push for medical legalization in california can you tell me sort of about you know who was president when you were doing these smokins can you can you sort of describe to me the the climate in the country as it was towards activism uh, during, you know, that period in history?
1: Yeah, sure I can. You know, this is, uh, so let me roll it back to 1971 for you. This is the height of the Vietnam War and the height of the anti-Vietnam War protests. It's 4th of July in Washington, D.C. Um, I am 13 years old. Um, uh, The uh, president is President Richard Nixon, who was a complete enemy of the anti-war movement. Uh, uh, And uh, on this day, the pro-Nixon forces uh, uh, held a rally called Honor America Day, uh, which was organized by the Reverend Carl McIntyre. And all of these uh, right-wing pro-war folks came and gathered at at the Washington Monument. And you know, it was very personal for us in those days. We, we had the draft then, and, you know, we had friends, we had brothers uh, um, who had just been plucked out of our communities and sent to Vietnam and come back home in body bags. So it was very personal to us when we saw all these right-wingers down uh, at the monument uh, calling for even more people to die. So so that was the 1st smoke, and I didn't help organize it, but I was there. And if if anybody really wants to see what a wild... Praised demonstration uh, looks like just Google um, Google Honor America Day or or the first smoking. Uh, it was uh, a angry time in our country as angry as it is t- now, um, and so um, it was um, it was confrontational, um, and uh, people on both sides were raised voices and profanity, and you know we even we even threw a, a few things around um, to make our point. <laughs> So that, you know, that was the, the early, early days. And it was where my, um, where my, I guess my style of activism was kind of forged in that milieu.
0: So, and at that time, I mean, we know now, you know, that, uh, Nixon's administration had, you know, really clamped down on, on the, on, you know, the war on drugs, um, you know, to, to keep the, the blacks and the hippies down. I mean, that's, you know, what, what the the documents that are now released show. Was there any indication back then that that was the impetus behind, you know, the crackdown by the government?
1: Oh, we knew it, it, that, exactly that that was the impetus. Um, there was no... Uh, there was zero doubt in our mind. Um, we you know by that time we knew enough about cannabis to know that that this was not a well-intentioned effort of the government to keep us from something that was dangerous. Um, so it, it was very, very clear at that time, you know the federal government under Nixon was really in a state of domestic warfare with the anti-war movement. They were sending uh, FBI agents into anti-war groups uh, trying to uh, convince people to set bombs. Um, and they would put informers in. And then if people agreed to do these crazy things that the all, informers always proposed, then people would be arrested on these conspiracy charges, um, what we would call terrorism uh, charges uh, uh, today. So um, it, 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 there was no doubt in our mind uh, that, the, that the campaign against cannabis was intended to, to hurt us, um, uh, to hurt us, the hippies, the, the anti-war forces, black people and brown people.
0: It's unbelievable. Um, so, so let's let's move ahead to the '90s and the legalization of medical cannabis in uh, California. Uh, tell me about you know what, what was your role in that and, and the early days of that industry.
1: Well, I was still living in Washington DC in 1996 when Prop 215 passed. I did travel out here. Um, and I did make donations. And I did do some volunteer work. Uh, but that effort was led by my dear friend Dennis Perrone. And I can safely say this now, um, that you know Dennis and I uh, were engaged in 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 underground uh, trafficking activities with us before it was with each other before it was possible to have a license. And so I was tracking what he was doing uh, pretty carefully and you know, we really have Dennis Peron to thank for the birth of the of the modern medical cannabis industry and and movement. Uh, and this was the time of the AIDS crisis. Uh, and uh, the AIDS crisis was hitting uh, San Francisco, especially, especially hard. Um, you know, the, the gay community in San Francisco was having funerals every weekend and instead of having parties. Um, you, you didn't know anybody who who wasn't either sick or, or, or didn't have friends that were sick. And, and Dennis was a weed dealer. Um, he was a gay man. He was a Vietnam vet. And this strange thing started happening. You know, Dennis was always very generous with his cannabis and gave it uh, away as, as much as he would sold it. And he noticed that his friends who had AIDS who were consuming cannabis were living longer and having a higher quality of life than people who didn't. And, and as soon as he noticed this, he started spreading the news and started uh, giving away as much cannabis as he could to, to AIDS patients um, and, uh, and forming alliances with, um, with people like Brownie Mary. Uh, Brownie Mary was a, um, I think Brownie Mary was in her 70s when she started this work with Dennis Perone, And Dennis would, uh, would get cannabis for Brownie Mary. Brownie Mary would make it up into brownies and then she would distribute those brownies to AIDS patients on the ward at um, San Francisco General Hospital, where she was a, a volunteer. She'd been a volunteer there for years and years and years. And um, uh, so this, you know, this is all taking place in the late '80s, uh, 1990 and 1991, Dennis uh, was the lead organizer for uh, proposition I believe it was called Proposition 91 in San Francisco. And that was the very first, or no, it was Proposition P in San Francisco, and, uh, and it won um, uh, in 1991. And that was the first, uh, made San Francisco the first legal jurisdiction for medical cannabis. And then five years after that, um, Dennis, another good friend of mine, Jack Herrer, um, uh, and a lot of other folks were the prime movers behind uh, Prop 215, which passed in, in 1996 and made California the first medical cannabis state.
0: And what was it set up like, you know, like there was was there licenses like there is now, you know, was that early industry how was it regulated at all?
1: Well, it basically wasn't regulated in the early days. So Prop 215 called on the legislature to license and regulate the cultivation and distribution of cannabis. But law enforcement agencies and the League of Cities and the Association of Rural Counties uh, all got together and put political pressure on the legislature and prevented them from doing that because the law enforcement organizations did not want cannabis to be legitimized. So you had this crazy situation where it was legal for people to possess and use cannabis legally at the state level but there was absolutely no mechanism by which they could get that legal cannabis, right? Uh, The whole intention of the law was being frustrated by the failure of the legislature. So activists took matters into their own hands. People who had zero interest in being business people, who had never thought about profit or net profit or a spreadsheet in their whole lives, opened up little stores. And they were they were you know very raw in the beginning. You'd you'd walk into a storefront that had been started by activists who were just frustrated that people couldn't get medicine. And there would be a couch, there would be a widescreen TV, there would be a little cabinet, there would be a cigar box that was your cash register, <laughs> and and there would be some some bags of weed that looked very much like the same bags of weed that you would buy at, at a dealer's house. Um so that was the earliest. Earliest uh, version, um, uh, and um, uh, the that was a that was kind of a problematic version, right? Because what happened is the activist dispensaries started doing huge business. I mean, nobody really expected it, but it was it was the only place that people could legally get cannabis. So people who had never run a business before suddenly they're seeing millions and millions of dollars coming into in through the through the doors and you know all kinds of traffic and volume and well all of that volume and money attracted another sort of dispensary operator and these were folks who really liked the gray area um, uh, they were people who. Um, who, well, their backgrounds say a lot about them, right? You know, one of the, of the guys uh, who jumped into, into that space uh, was a guy whose previous gig uh, was selling uh, organic Kona coffee, quote, unquote, wow. organic Kona coffee. Um, but um, the, the coffee was neither organic uh, nor from Kona. Uh, it was coffee, we believe. There's another guy whose previous gig was running an underground gambling casino at Anchorage. And these were folks who were really not motivated uh, by a desire to serve medical cannabis patients, but motivated by a desire to make as much money as they could, as quickly as they could. And uh, and so the 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 places they put up were really problematic. You you'd go in, and there'd be a whole bunch of security, barbed wires, bulletproof glass, these great big thuggish goonie guards um, uh, um, and there was no real effort to treat people like patients, to uh, educate them about cannabis, to do anything other than get them in and out as quickly as, as possible and take as much money from them along the way so these these uh, operations started getting a lot of publicity and um, they started appearing on news stories and um, and the image of medical cannabis started shifting from one of service, uh, to one of criminality and exploitation. And, uh, there were some raids up in, uh, uh, in Northern California around this time where, you know, I remember one story where somebody was raided and they had $600,000, um, in a garbage bag and, uh, had, um, owned like several luxury cars and, I don't know. I, I mean, two hundred pairs of sunglasses or something. So um, it, it became clear to me that that we needed a gold standard of cannabis retailing um, to um, to show that this was an activity when done with good intention could bring benefits to communities uh, rather than harms, and uh, and that's what led to to the starting of Harbor So,
0: and and since then. I mean, you've, you found a lot of several other businesses, I mean, in, in, that are not dispensaries, not retail, there's Steep hills I mentioned, you know, Laboratories, uh, Arcview for Investment. Uh, when, you know, obviously, you, you, you realized at that time, you know, when the CD players started coming into California, uh, that you needed a gold standard. When was it apparent to you that the industry needed
1: these types of businesses uh, and resources? So what happened is Oakland um, became the first jurisdiction anywhere in the United States to license medical cannabis retailing. And that happened in 2006 because um, some of the problematic dispensaries that I've been talking about opened in Oakland. They were clustered in in one area and uh, and the city council responded by passing this uh, licensing program. And, uh, and forcing all of the dispensaries in the city to to get licenses. Um, and Harborside got one of those licenses. And, you know, we our intention from the beginning was just to create a really top-flight retail store experience for cannabis consumers. That would be the equivalent of any other uh, top-shelf retail experience. And uh, the market really responded to that. I think that uh, by the end of our third year, we were up to twenty million dollars a year in sales. We were serving hundreds and hundreds of of patients um, every day, and and with that success um, came um, uh, some some attention, some media attention, and a few things uh, grew out of it. Um, first was Steep Hill Laboratory. Um, you know, before I opened Harborside, I had contacted every single commercial analytical laboratory in the Bay Area and asked them to test our cannabis because I, I didn't want to call it medicine unless I 100% knew that it was safe. And I, I knew what what its potency was, what cannabinoids were in it. But they all refused because of federal law. Uh, and so uh, I got together with my two co-founders, Addison Demora and Dave Lompoc. And we formed the world's first dedicated cannabis analytics laboratory, Steep Hill Laboratory. And we did that in, in, 20, in 2010, which allowed Harborside to become the first dispensary anywhere that sold um, that sold uh, cannabis that had been tested, that sold CBD-rich cannabis. Um, uh, so that was you know a kind of an outgrowth. It was just a, a need that was there. And then another need became apparent as, as, um, as we got a lot of media attention. I started seeing and hearing from two kinds of people. The first were folks who had successes in the cannabis industry, but wanted to grow and, and needed some investment capital in order to, to reach, their, reach their, their full potential. And the other, and this was mostly through my partner, Troy Dayton, who had previously been a fundraiser for Marijuana Policy Project, He was having conversations with people who were very generous donors to the cannabis reform movement, um, high net worth individuals. And uh, and after he started talking to them about donations, frequently the conversation would turn to the new legal industry. And um, and Troy was asked, where are the deals? How do we understand what's going on there? Who are the players? How do you assess the risk? And. And. they wanted to put money into the industry. So it was obvious that, that you had these two groups of people and and they just really needed a meeting place. They needed to learn each other's language. They needed to understand each other's concerns. Um, and that's what led to the starting of the Artview Group. That was just an effort to introduce cannabis uh, entrepreneurs to cannabis investors.
0: Incredible it's 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 incredible to me just how these things are grown out of you know necessity and and then you know the laboratory is not regulated you guys are like well you know we we want this and and you you create it um and so so now you know you've been in the dispensary uh business the the laboratory business the investing business and then you found the ncia the 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 National Cannabis Industry Association. Um, tell me about the mission of the NCIA and, and what, in your opinion, the organization does to normalize
1: the cannabis industry. So it's, it's interesting. When we first started talking about the National Cannabis Industry Association, which I think was also 2010, um, people would laugh at us. I mean, even friends of mine, I go to say, hey, I'm starting the National Cannabis Industry Association. They'd, they'd laugh at me, right? They'd think that I was joking, that I was trying to be humorous because it was so improbable to people. But uh, but the folks who started the NCIA, um, people like myself, like my partner Troy Dayton, like um, like our executive director uh, Aaron Smith, um, you know, we were amongst the earliest uh, cannabis uh, uh, cannabis industry entrance. And we all came from a movement background, from a social justice background. And we wanted to make sure uh, of two things. First of all, that California wasn't the first and the last state to have legal cannabis. Uh, We wanted to make sure that there was a mechanism to defend um, uh, against federal attack. Remember that at this time, you had feds coming into California and raiding dispensaries, uh, taking people off to, to prison. Uh, we had people who, in that period of time, were sentenced uh, to sentences so long that they're still serving them now. There's a young man who was a young man then who's in his middle age now, Luke Scarmazzo, who um, who did much the same thing that I did. He was in, I think, Modesto. I was in Oakland. He was six months before I did it. And he caught, I believe it was a 20-year federal conspiracy um, uh, charge. So we very much were aware of the need to have a defense mechanism to make sure that this nascent industry wasn't strangled in its grave. That was part of the impulse, I'd say probably the main impulse behind the founding of NCIA. The second impulse was to uh, make sure that the industry that grew up was an industry that was cognizant of its social justice roots that um, did not just become a organization to help people make more money, but that remained an organization that was dedicated to bringing about uh, cannabis freedom and cannabis justice. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, on this, on the same sort of justice thing, you said in a recent interview that you want every single cannabis prisoner in the world out of prison. uh, And you've launched the last prisoner project in an effort to do just that. Uh, Tell me about this project and and how it will work toward that goal of getting every single cannabis prisoner in the world out of prison.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And thanks for asking. Um, The inspiration for, for the last prisoner project, um, really came from a personal experience that I had uh, after California had voted to legalize cannabis, but before it was completely 100% the law had been implemented. And during this period, I, like a lot of uh, cannabis entrepreneurs and business people in California, was meeting with uh, investment bankers, was meeting with people who uh, can can help you get onto the uh, stock exchanges, can help you raise capital, because we were gearing up uh, for this new adult use market. And I was in one of these meetings in a really big, fancy skyscraper, huge conference table, amazing view. And I'd been talking to a lot of folks who were really, really excited. We were looking at numbers. We were adding them up. It was looking really good. There was excitement in the room because everybody knew uh, that we were going to be making money doing this and making significant amounts of money doing this. And towards the end of the meeting, right at the end of the meeting, actually, I get a, a phone call. And it's my friend Chuck. Chuck has been imprisoned in the state of Pennsylvania for four years. For fourteen pounds of cannabis, and we in that conference room had been talking about magnitudes more. I mean, we've been talking about tons and tons of cannabis. Literal and tons. None of us had to worry about going to prison. So I, I excused myself. I took the call. Uh, I talked to Chuck, and he's uh, he's a tough guy, so he wasn't whining or anything. But you know, I could tell that that he was miserable. He was lonely. He he was really upset because he his mother, um, elderly mother. Didn't have anyone to to shovel the snow from her walk. So I hung up the phone and it just just struck me. I was like, God, we're sitting here talking about creating intergenerational wealth, millions and millions and millions of dollars, creating a whole new industry that's going to be on stock exchanges. And my friend Chuck and thousands of people like him are sitting there in cells. I was like, imagine, how would you feel? If you were sitting in a cell, looking out your windows or watching TV and seeing this huge new legal industry and all these people talking excitedly about all the investments and the conferences and the money and and you're sitting there in that cell oh, shit. for doing exactly the same thing. So I, you know, I know how I would feel, and I don't want anyone to feel that way. And that was the um that was the genesis for the Last Prisoner Project. So what are you doing over there with the Last Prisoner Project? Like, like, what, what what, are you
0: guys working towards, I guess?
1: Well, the you know, the first thing that we're doing is really just assessing the problem. It turns out that it's not easy to determine how many people are locked up in the United States on cannabis charges. Uh, lots of jurisdictions don't even really track um, uh, uh, charges by particular drugs. Um, lots of times people end up um, uh, with the with the with the, the crime of violating probation or violating parole yeah. but the underlying cause of that violation is a bad cannabis urine test so it can be difficult to assess and and the first thing that we're doing is really just trying to figure out where all of our people are and what kind of situations uh, that they're in uh, an assessment and 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 figuring out what it's going to take to free them where we're headed right, is towards a formal launch in September. There will be a really exciting launch. I'll, I'll let you know about it as it happens. Please um, can't do. talk too much about it right now. But the centerpiece are, uh, of our program in the earliest days is going to be clemency petitions. Um, right now, there are a number of states that uh, have passed cannabis laws, um, and and some of those laws have provisions. Uh, for clemency in them. Some of them do not. But in all cases, the governor of a state has the power to give clemency to any prisoner, to let them out of prison immediately. Um, and, and governors in some of the new reform states like Michigan and Illinois have indicated in public statements that they're willing to do this. The problem is that the technical effort of actually filing out these thousands and thousands of clemency petitions, submitting them, reviewing them, um, uh, getting them cleared, and actually releasing prisoners is a huge task. And, uh, and that task is usually just goes through the governor's office, who doesn't have a huge staff. So what we're going to be doing is working with governor's offices around the country to help develop streamlined clemency procedures. Uh, and then we are recruiting and training a small army of lawyers who will work with all of the prisoners to file their individual clemency petitions. Um, we think this is the the fastest way to get the most people out for the least amount of money. So we want to do that um, uh, as quickly as we can. Um, but moving on, there you know there will be cannabis prisoners who don't qualify for clemency. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, one of the prisoners that we're in touch with um, uh, is, is facing a 42 to 60-year uh, sentence, oh, a, no. a de facto life sentence. Uh, it was his third cannabis sale, uh, but he uh, lived on a farm. And, uh, um, and, and if it was just the cannabis sale, um, he would have gone to prison for a long time, but not that long. But because there were guns in another part of the farm that were unrelated to, to the sale, but were on the legal property, he was he was given gun charges as well, and so uh, this person who had never uh, committed a violent crime, nobody was ever hurt, he wasn't carrying guns, um, is now looking at a forty-two to sixty-year sentence. So in these kinds of cases, we are probably we are going to have to move towards uh, petitions for resentencing, and um, and petitions for retrial in some cases, um, they will be more expensive. They will take longer, but we're not going to stop until we get the last one out.
0: I, I really can't wait to to see you know some of the headlines that that pop up as a result of uh, of this project. And thanks for you know filling me in a little bit before uh, the launch. Um, you know, talking about you know the money that you guys can be made uh, in the industry, and a lot of states, township, or cities. Uh, have launched social equity programs whereby some licenses are given to people, you know, usually most affected uh, by the war on drugs. In your opinion, do these programs do enough to provide those those so-called reparations?
1: Well, I think they're a start, uh, but they're not sufficient in themselves. And And what's really important to remember in this whole conversation is that the racial disparity in cannabis enforcement was not just some unintended consequence that like just happened, okay? The original animating purpose of cannabis prohibition in the United States was to control black and brown communities. That is why the laws were passed in the first place. That was their intention and the disparity was planned from the beginning. And so if we do not do something to make sure that this is a diverse industry, that people of color have an opportunity, a real opportunity to participate in, then we are piling injustice on top of injustice. Um, but we have this amazing opportunity to uh, to to fix it. Um, I think that that operates at several levels. Yes, we need some uh, preferential licensing um, uh, provisions to to make sure that uh, that we get folks from communities of color licensed in the first place. But getting a license is just the beginning of it. After you get a license, you have to get a location. You have to recruit a team. You have to write a plan. You have to raise money. You have to uh, set up all of your compliance, all of your security, all of your bookkeeping. Uh, And that's a big task for somebody that hasn't had an opportunity to participate in a business before. Uh, And it takes a lot of money to do it. So what we're finding in too many cases is that um, people from communities of color who have received licenses are unable to actually put those licenses into effect and create businesses. And and, in cases where they have been able to do that, frequently they are unable to keep the business open or sometimes, and, 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 and in other cases, just not able to grow it to its full potential. So I think that... Uh, that we really need a network of support around equity licensee um, uh, around people who have been awarded equity licenses. and uh, I think that that, that takes a, a number of different forms. <clears throat> I think there needs to be training and you have some private companies who are who are stepping into that gap now and and acting as uh, kind of brokers between investors and um, and uh, uh, Equity uh, licensees. Um, That's one way of of tackling that. You know, I would really like to see a world class training center for cannabis equity licensees, Uh, someplace that would be in a beautiful, prestigious location where equity licensees from all over the country could come and get the very best. I'm talking like Harvard level. Cannabis training, both workers who are in the workforce and entrepreneurs. Um, and then I'd like to see a dedicated showcase mall attached to that university, to that training center, where the graduates of those programs would be able to move right into locations that would be licensed um, uh, so that they have an opportunity to really take the skills that they learned and take the license and execute on it and make it something that happens. And that's, that's not something that, you know, that can happen by the government by itself, but I think that that, that could happen. I'd like to see a fund. Right? I think that the cannabis investors should get together and put together a fund uh, with the understanding that, that the money that came out of this fund would be supplied to entrepreneurs from communities of color and would be supplied at a very advantageous rate that would give them a little bit of a competitive edge in, in the marketplace. Um, uh, and, uh, I think, so I think that there's things that, that can and should be done to supplement the, the licensing, uh, regulations that their licensing regulations are just the starting point, um, uh, that give us the ability to start building, but we have a lot of building to do after that.
0: So a very very interesting idea uh, that you have, you know, and there and there are to be fair, you know, quite a few angel investors in this space that I've actually had on the show that that do uh, do what you sort of uh, outline there, where, where they do offer you know these social equity applicants sort of better rates and and training programs. Um, You know, for the space. I want to switch gears a little bit um, while we still have some time and talk to you briefly about going public on the the CSE, the Canadian Securities Exchange. Um, how important is such a move as the industry gets more competitive? I mean, you talk. You know, you've told us. You know, from from you know the '70s to now. You know, you go from a little shop in Oakland to now. You know, being publicly traded. Uh, Can you know sort of tell me tell me about your opinion too on you know sort of the evolution of the industry
1: well you know the the from from uh, the evolution of the industry has been massively accelerated uh, by the opening of the canadian public stock exchanges to cannabis companies and what you've seen uh, certainly in california and, and really around the the country is uh, companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars on the Canadian stock exchanges are now coming into the United States and uh, either acquiring uh, U.S. cannabis companies or merging with U.S. cannabis companies or forming uh, some type of strategic alliance with cannabis companies. Um, um, So if you you really want to be in the top tiers of cannabis companies in the United States, um, you almost must have a some type of, of public market strategy uh, in order to continue growing at the pace that your competitors are growing.
0: Is it a little bit crazy to you, you know, going from where you started, uh, you know, with the sort of gray market to launching that same company uh, on a on a national exchange?
1: Well, it's incredibly validating, right? Um, Harborside just it was just. A little over three years ago, no, excuse me, just a little under three years ago, that the federal government of the United States finally wrested the civil forfeiture cases that they were prosecuting against us, trying to seize uh, all of the locations, the real estate uh, that we operated in, and close us down. So now to have successfully uh, resisted the federal government's effort to close us and close the whole industry. Uh, To have gone through the 2018 um, uh, regulations in California, which were were intense, um, and successfully enter um, the Canadian uh, Securities Exchange through one of the most uh, demanding uh, due diligence processes that exist on planet Earth, um, that's that's, uh, exhilarating and, and validating for me.
0: And then, you know, I remember when I was, you know, younger, I, I, my friends and I would talk about legalization and we were like, won't well, we won't see it in our lifetime. Um, and here we are. Uh, I'm in New York, so I, I, it's still not legal. Um, but I am seeing legalization in my lifetime. It, can, can you sort of speak to that uh, as somebody who's been an activist for as long as you have and, and seeing as much as you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I get this question all the time, and my basic answer is um, I always knew that this plant would be legal. Um, I thought that we would actually get it done in a much shorter period of time that, that it has taken us. Um, you know, there was a period of time in the 1970s when we had about 15 states that decriminalized cannabis, and in 1978, President Jimmy Carter endorsed the nationwide Decriminalization of, of cannabis, but then Ronald Reagan was elected, and he rejuvenated Nixon's whole war on drugs uh, thing, and a lot of the decriminalization states recriminalized a uh, 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 cannabis. Right. So, um, uh, and that's and, and and that's taken us, you know, all of these years since then to to claw our way back to the point that we are now. Um, I don't think I answered your question, though, Tim. Do you You, want to read? You did answer my question. (laughs)
0: Um, And and in the last minute here, so what advice uh, would you have
1: uh, for entrepreneurs looking to enter the cannabis space? Uh, My advice to entrepreneurs who want to enter the cannabis space is to um, take a look at your uh, whatever it is that you already know how to do. Uh, chances are you'll be able to take that skill set and apply it in the world of cannabis. Uh, the The reality uh, is that uh, cannabis has been illegal and cut off from most modern business technology or practices or ideas uh, ever since the beginning of modern business. So whether you're a software engineer or you're a compliance uh, specialist or you're a marketing person um, or um, you're in HR, Uh, the cannabis industry is going to need all of, all of these skill sets and and all sorts of, of ideas. So, um, use the knowledge that you have, take a look at the world of cannabis and you will probably see gaps. You will probably see places where you'll say, gee, I know how we can fix that problem. And that of course is the, you know, in my mind, the essence of all successful entrepreneurship is spotting a problem and figuring out a solution to it.
0: Steve D'Angelo, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I could sit here literally and, and talk to you for another three hours. Um, where can people find out more about you, your story, and, and what you have going on?
1: Sure. Um, uh, you can go to my website, uh, stevedeangelo.com. Uh, that's probably the best way to get me. You can also um, uh, track me on IG. It's um, at stevedeangelo. And um, uh, I will uh, be speaking um, uh, widely. Um, You can go into Greenflower Media. I have a little show on Greenflower Media that's called Ask Steve. And uh, my brother and I are working on a podcast, which we expect to launch sometime in the next coming weeks. That is all very super exciting stuff. Uh, I'm going to send you so many questions on Ask
0: Steve. Um, Steve D'Angelo, he's an OG. He's the father of the cannabis industry. He's the chairman emeritus of Harborside. Um, He's the co-founder of Steve Hill. He's basically done it all. Uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on the show, Steve. Thanks so much
1: for having me, Tim.
0: You can, tell, you can find more episodes of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gondrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gondrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gondrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House, and this outro was botched by T.G. Brantfault.